Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. Welcome to the How to Hunt Deer podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. This podcast aims to educate those who are interested in becoming deer hunters, brushing up on essential skills, or maybe just adding a few new tactics to the toolkit. On this podcast, we cover a variety of topics that will help you be more confident and successful when you're out in the field hunting deer. Thank you so much for tuning in with us this week. I'm your host, Josh Raley. We've got a great episode for you today. We have been talking for the last couple of weeks all about food plots, and we've kind of been building up to today's episode. So we've talked about how to get started with no-till food plot planting, which is great uh, if soil health is your number one concern. Uh, It's also great if you don't have big farming equipment to be able to till the soil. It's just it's a really good, effective way of getting your food plots in the ground. Then we talked with Jake Hendrickson from Whitetail Partners, Michigan, about food plot design uh, and placement on your property. Where should these pl- food plots go to make sure that you're going to have daylight movement on your property, on these deer, that your food plots, making sure that your food plots are doing what you want them to do, that you didn't just throw a bunch of money into this, uh, hoping that deer would come, that you, you want your food plots to actually influence your hunting for the better. And then last week, we talked with Mitchell Shirk from the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast, and we covered soil testing and why that's so important. Mitch understands that well. He's a row crop agronomist, and he told us exactly why we need to be getting our food plots soil tested and how we need to be amending the soil based on those tests. Now, for this episode, we're talking with Altamechco from Vitalized Seed Company, about getting the right food plot seed for your specific application. There are lots of theories out there. A lot of guys like to plant a monoculture food plot. A lot of guys like to plant uh, blends of different kinds. A lot of folks say, hey, I only buy my seed from the farm co-op because I don't need to pay extra money for something with a deer on the bag. Other guys will say, hey, I buy that stuff with the deer on the bag because I know it's specifically formulated with hunting in mind. So, Uh, There's lots of different theories out there, and I think Al has a really good take on this. Al is a guy that is uh, self-educated on this stuff. He got into it just because of a sheer passion and interest for it. And Vitalized Seed Company has some really interesting things that they're doing in the food plotting space. So in this episode, we're going to talk about how do you choose the right seed for you. We're also going to cover their one-two approach, their their two-step approach to food plotting which I am really intrigued by and may be incorporating that this year. We'll see. Uh, I haven't quite decided what all blends or uh, seed types I'm going to be using for this fall. But now as we jump into today's episode, if you're out there on your land, you're trying to plan out your food plots, trying to figure out exactly where you want them, trying to map them out, find the best place for them, the Onyx Hunt app is going to help your planning. You can take it out there, see exactly where you're standing. You can mark things on it. You can even draw a food plot on your uh, right there in your app so that you know exactly where you want it to be. You can then take a step back and say, okay, how big is this? How much seed do I need? And it will tell you exactly how big the area is that you have carved out or, or traced out on the app for your food plots. So for me, as a land manager, as a hunter, Onyx Hunt, it's a no-brainer. I also do a ton of hunting on public land in which... Onyx Hunt gives me the confidence to just strike out on my own into unfamiliar places and and have the confidence that, hey, I'm still going to come home tonight. I'm not going to have to spend the night uh, out in the woods. So go check them out, onyxmaps.com, or you can find them on the app store of your choice. Next up, Huntworth. We're in that season right now, guys, where a lot of folks are thinking about, okay, what's the gear that I'm going to be needing this fall? And if camo is on your list, I highly recommend you head over to huntworthgear.com and see what all Huntworth has to offer two of my favorites right now for these warmer months i mean it's hot already here in georgia number one the durham lightweight pants love those pants i'm going to be wearing them all summer for scouting and checking trail cameras 
Number two, the Lodi Pack. It's their smaller pack, and I love to throw my trail cameras in there. It's got a spot for a water bladder. It makes everything super, super simple. It's a light pack, but it does everything that I need it to do. So head over to HuntworthGear.com and check those out. Next up, Tacticam. If you're looking to film your hunts for the fall of 2023 and winter of 2024 hunting, uh, now's the time to go ahead and grab yourself a Tacticam 6.0 or a Solo Extreme. And I say that because it is critical, especially if you're a bow hunter, to practice with the camera on your weapon. That's going to do two things. Number one, it's going to get you uh, familiar and comfortable with the feel of having the camera on the front. Number two, if you turn on your camera and see what you record, it's going to let you get a feel for, hey, what do I need to do to make sure I get the shot on camera, but also the follow-up on camera. One of the big things that I love about a Tacticam and about filming my hunts is that when I take the shot, I've got the follow-up. I can see exactly where that deer went because I follow the deer with the camera, with my weapon. But that's not necessarily natural. You know, a lot of times I'm tempted to take the shot and drop my arm with the bow especially. So a lot of that stuff can kind of be uh, weeded out this time of year with a little bit of practice. I highly recommend the 6.0 camera. I love, love, love those cameras. The touchscreen in itself is a tremendous upgrade and makes it worth, in my opinion, buying over the Solo Extreme, although the Solo Extreme is still a very, very nice camera. You can find their cameras and their mounts and adapters and all sorts of other stuff over at Tacticam.com. Guys, please go support the partners that support this show. I so appreciate them believing in this show, believing in what we're doing, and helping me bring you awesome content each and every week. You can show them your appreciation for that by, uh, yeah, checking them out, going and uh, picking up a few items from them. So, Anyway, with that stuff out of the way, let's jump into today's episode talking about food plot seed selection with Al Tomechko. Joining me this week for the How to Hunt Deer podcast is Al Tomechko from Vitalize Seed Company. Al, man, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Josh, happy to be here. Thank you so much for the invite. It's uh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, I heard about uh, you and Vitalize Seed on a, on a podcast episode that you did with a buddy of mine named uh, Mitchell Shirk. He hosts the Pennsylvania Woodsman podcast. Uh, really, really good show, has a lot of information that's relevant for folks, even outside of the state of Pennsylvania. One of the shows that I keep up with, right, like one of the shows that I listen to uh, week in and week out, and you guys had a heck of a conversation on soil health and really got off in the weeds talking about all that, all that stuff. And one of the things that stuck out to me was he mentioned in there, like, hey, this guy's self-taught on a lot of this stuff. Like, this is a, a true passion that led you to where you are today. So, Al, if people aren't familiar with you, why don't you tell them how you uh, went from, uh, you know, a, a kid maybe doing a little bit of hunting to the food plot guy now? Yeah, well, I don't know if I'm the guy, but I, I certainly <laughs> learned a little bit. And, um, you know, I, I have always been somebody who likes to grow things. You know, I, I grew up in a in a town in northeastern Ohio that has, is now grown. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, suburb of uh, Cleveland. Ohio. But when I was growing up, I mean, it was, um, I always would tell this story, but I remember going to church and seeing the farmers, uh, you know, at seven thirty mass, all the farmers would be, um, sitting there in church before going out. And I always looked up to guys who grew stuff, right. Tons of farms and tons of farm stands. And unfortunately now over the last, uh, 35 years, a lot of that has, has changed and, and even longer since, you know, mom and dad have lived here. But, um, it was always something I looked up to. I always liked to grow stuff. My grandpa always had a garden and, uh, always liked to deer hunt. Um, about 15 years ago or so, we'd always hunted public ground and some permission farms and stuff like that, but we ended up getting our own piece of property. Um, and I just started doing things the traditional way. I, you know, had a tractor and a tiller and I, I just went to town and, was reading back then. Um, I'm sure you'll probably remember some of the QDMA forums and stuff that were active. Oh yeah, um, I was following a lot of those, you know. And gosh, talk about a tough place to learn for somebody because you know you'd get on there and three guys would say one thing and four guys would say something else and one guy, you know, and you're like, what? What makes sense? You know, and one guy says he's a farmer and this guy says he's a farmer and they're contradicting contradicting each other. Yeah. So it's really difficult to discern. Like, well who actually has credentials or, or who doesn't or what should I do? And um, so I just kind of started trying things. And of course, the one common thing that came up was like soil test, soil test, soil test, soil test. And um, I kind of am a skeptic by nature. So I, I test and then I'd question things like, 
well, why is this this way? Or why is that that way? And, you know, I remember this, this idea of, uh, of no-till, you know, and I think QDMA, I don't want to throw them under, but they're no longer anymore, right? They're part of NDA. So I think they had done an article on no-till and it intrigued me, but I, it made me, it had so many more questions, right? So I started questioning, I go, well, if no-till is so great for organic matter, why isn't my lawn 30% organic matter? Like there's something else here, right? Like it yep. can't just yep. be like, yep. no-till in and of itself just can't be the driving factor for organic matter creation. Yeah. Um, which that in and of itself might not be the holy grail that, that we've always pre- been preached about but or, or taught about um, or that's been preached to us. But so I started questioning. Um, long story long, I – we acquired more property. So in the part of uh, Ohio that our farms and it's big timber country to register timber farm. I manage all the TSI contract, NRCS equip contracts myself. And maybe with the help of buddies from invasive removal to culture removal, I do all the work myself. Um, and really the main goal there is, you know, around our farm, there's probably a thousand acres of, of clear cut. I mean, there's not a lack of bedding, uh, but it's always going to be a lack of food in that part of the, the specifically green food, you know, and uh, I always wanted to add more, add more, add more. So I was doing so and doing so in some pretty tough locations, right? As I just explained kind of the area, um, most of the areas in which I was adding food was, you know, a two acre logging deck that pine logs had been <laughs> skidded out on and sat on for, for a while. And then, you know, finally moved. So you have compaction issues, you have all the pine straw, pine duff, et cetera. So, you know, acidity. And I remember pulling soil samples. It was about seven years ago now, seven and a half years ago now and uh, pulled soil samples. And I looked and I was going to spend just in spring about $2,000 on spring fertilizer. Um, and I just said, there's got to be another way. I'm like, I can't, you know, I was a you know, younger guy than I am now and um, young guy. And I just said this, this, I, I can't afford to do this and then do it again in the fall. And um, I just decided that there has to be another way. So I just kind of immersed myself in it and I started reading I don't know how many books I've read on it. I've uh, befriended people like Mitch, my buddy Caleb from uh, South Georgia, who's an agronomist. Um, You know, I'll I'll talk about it later, but some of the people at Ward Laboratories, you know, I found a lab that I felt very confident in and I test and test and test and I ask questions after questions. Um, YouTube's a great resource. And I just really dove in into that and, I think I was a little bit blessed that it kind of came. Um, some of the things came a little bit natural to me as far as my comprehension goes, you know, um, I don't think it would have been the same if I was trying to do, you know, quantum mechanics, right. I probably would have <laughs> like falling asleep or wouldn't have been able to comprehend, but some of these things just for whatever reason, maybe from always having a huge garden and growing, it just made sense. Like observation. I'm like, I've seen this, right. This yeah. makes sense to me. So when I saw it quantified in, soil tests or, or tissue tests or whatnot. I'm like, all right, this makes a lot of sense. And I just felt like that was maybe missing a little bit in the food plot world. I feel like it was maybe overly simplified. Mm. So I started writing some blogs on, Hey, here's what I'm finding. Hey, here's a link to a peer reviewed research paper. Here's a link to a podcast. Here's a link to this and this, and Hey, this contradicts this, but there's still good pieces here. You know, here's a book. And, um, yeah, eventually, I mean, I got enough messages and stuff. People were like, you know, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? It just kind of naturally grew from there. Yeah, man. So let's let's talk then a little bit about uh, the the beginnings of, of Vitalized Seed, right? Like how long has Vitalized been around? We just celebrated one year in business. No kidding. One year. Yes, sir. Yep. Oh, my word. So not not very long. No. So tell no. me, tell me about those early days. I mean, did you just, is this one of those things that just started out? You're like helping buddies with, with blends and that kind of stuff or, or, or how did, how did that get going? Yeah. So, um, you know, growing up in Ohio, we have a pretty good amount of co-ops, you know, even if you, you could be in downtown Cleveland or Columbus or, uh, I don't know Cincinnati that well, but you could be in Cleveland or Columbus and be, out in a rural area within like 
35, 40 minutes, right? Like pretty much any direction, except if you're in Cleveland, don't go north, right? I can run into the lake. But, uh, you know, and with that comes typically farmers co-ops, you know, farmers exchanges. And, you know, so for me growing up, it was always relatively easy to go and find a, a co-op that would be willing to say, you know, um, yeah, I'll mix this for you. Now, it got more complicated as I got more into, you know, the regenerative model or more into the heavy diverse mixes or whatnot. Um, one, they just don't carry, they carry the stuff that sells, you know, yeah. and to order stuff in, it gets complicated. And then um, two, you know, the minimum orders, uh, as I had shared with you, you know, we're, I was buying 10, 12, 20 acres to plants at a time. Um, so maybe that would get them excited enough to do it. But a lot of co-ops, what we found or what I found is they were cheap. The guys were like, Hey, I went into my local co-op and they told me to pound salt or they told me they don't carry this. They only carry this. They, they don't carry crimson clover. They carry white Dutch, you know, for your yard. And they said, Oh, that's good enough. Or, Hey, they didn't really want to deal with me. Right. Which I get they're, yep. they're volume yep. focused. Um, so I kind of was initially like, Hey, I'll help, you know, I'll help you out. Hey, here's, here's what, in my mix, you know, and, um, what ended up happening is, uh, I had so many people writing to me and he, they're like, Hey, can I buy that mix off of you? Hey, can I, cause I was documenting over the last like six years, here's kind of what I'm doing. You know, I'm planning this heavily diverse mix in the fall. I'm kind of letting it get to maturity and then I'm seeding a spring mix into it. And some years it was just broadcast and whatever happened, happened. Some years it was, um, you know, I had the time to actually broadcast and mow it off or herb, use herbicide burn down and plant into it that way. I, I didn't till for seven years. So it was always some type of broadcast method and then physical or, or chemical termination. Um, and I didn't have a no-till drill until recently, but um, I would share these kind of step-by-step processes and as I got more in depth with some of the information I was sharing about things like nu- nutrient cycling or microorganisms or whatnot, I got more and more messages. At the same time, a good friend of mine, Jared Van Hees, um, owns Habitat Podcast. And Jared um, and I had been talking. He had no longer been affiliated with the previous um, food plot company that he had worked with. And I kind of went to him. I go, listen. I'm kind of thinking about this. I have a lot of interest with people. You know, we could work together on this. Why don't we become partners? Um, You bring this great network to the table. You know, I know the seed mixes. You've seen them, you know, et cetera. And uh, he was like, yeah, let's do it. So we, you know, sat down and and started kind of figuring everything out last, uh, well, it would have been, you know, a year and a half ago. And then we launched uh, just about one year ago, year and two months or something like that. Wow. How is the, how has the, the growth in the reception been, uh, over that, over that year? I mean, it's, we couldn't ask for a more warm welcome. Um, it's been Josh in full transparency. We started this to help people. Sure. You know, I tell people I got a two year old son, I got a, a pretty large farm plus more properties that, I, that I'm trying to help manage and stuff. Um, a wife and a full-time job. And, you know, we, we started this company in like a, yeah, you know, let's kind of, you know, make this a little side thing, like see what, what'll happen. And um, we just announced that we added our 23rd or 24th distributor um, throughout the country. Wow. So we have 23, 24 distributors throughout the United States. Um, and yeah, we, we've, we've absolutely been blown away with the reception and, you know, no company's perfect, but we, we try really, really hard to go above and beyond um, in what we bring to the table, what we offer for our customers, the customer service. But then also, uh, we really try, and I think this is, a lot of sportsmen have appreciated this, we really try to give back. So like right now, every order of Nitro Boost that's ordered from May 15th, which is our spring mix, till the June 1st, um, at the end, we're going to look at that total sales value and we're going to make a donation to um, the Deer Hunter Project by Eric, um, oh my gosh, Eric Long and Cody Altizer. They're doing a campaign where they're donating all the money. They have a GoFundMe page. They're donating all the money to um, for rough grouse conservation. Wow, very cool. And we just made a donation actually right before that to the rough grouse society directly. Um, 
So then Eric and Cody are good partners with us and we've got to work with them before. And they kind of like, Hey, we, we knew you guys did that, but we're kind of doing this. Would you guys, and I'm like, let's see how these sit and let's give something back to you guys too. And, um, they do a lot for conservation. Um, and you know, last year we did something, you know, small, right. But we're just trying to set an example because like we're a year old company and like, if we're giving back to conservation, I think, you know, we can set that tone for like everybody, like let's give back. So we got to give to, um, MSU deer lab, you know, for all the work they've done with uh, whitetail deer and, uh, Dr. Bronson Strickland, uh, gosh, he's answered email after email for me over the years when I've read his books and stuff. And, um, I just felt it's the right thing to do. So I think with a lot of that, um, you know, it's, it's brought a lot of uh, people joy in knowing that we're trying to give back to with, with, uh, you know, all the support that we've gotten. Yeah, man. I, I hope that that's, uh, as big of a deal to many of the folks <laughs> listening to this as it is to me, because being on this side of, of the hunting industry, and getting to see what I see, there there are companies that do what you guys are doing, that are putting your money where your mouth is, that are really giving back to conservation. And then there are companies that do nothing. And they're simply a leech on the resource and and on the on the people who enjoy the resource rather than giving back. So that's that's huge, man. Kudos to you guys for doing that. So uh, man, I want to talk about the the choice of seed that you're planting. We talked a little bit off air. Uh, I think there are a couple of different ways that people go about picking what they're going to grow in their food plots, right? Uh, a lot of it is, hey, I've got some bare dirt or I've got some some ground that I can rip up with a tractor and I'm going to throw some buck forage oats because I found a bag down at the uh, hardware store with a deer on it and I'm going to go throw that out there and see if stuff likes to eat it, right? I, I just, I want something green to sit over. And then when you, if you start a conversation about taking food plotting more seriously on your property, a lot of times the conversation revolves all around the seed, right? Like what, what kind of seed are you going to put out there? What kind of seed are you going to put out there? What kind of seed are you going to put out there? Uh, I want to step back a couple of, I guess, paces before we jump into you and your process with vitalized seed, which I think is awesome. Uh, When it comes to considering what to plant, what are some of the things that you're thinking about? Like, not just you there in Ohio, but think about like my, my property, for instance, Southern Alabama, super sandy soil. I'm talking, it might as well be the beach, you know, or uh, here in Georgia where I'm at. I've got a lease about an hour north of me. It is the reddest of red clay. And if you're lucky, you might find some rocks in it. You know, like that's the, that, that, that's what we've got. So Across the country, what are some things you're considering and how do uh, how does the, the cards that you're dealt, I guess, with your ground, how does that influence the kind of seed that you're going to pick? So it's a really great question. Um, I try to tell people to take a step back and ignore a lot of the mis information that's been presented to you, right? Cause, so I'll, I'll hear people yep. say, yep. I have seen the soil, I can't grow X, Y, and Z. My buddy Caleb, um, I'll uh, I'll have to t- text him after this and and tell him that I, I mentioned I mentioned him on like every podcast because he's been such a good resource <laughs> to me, right? Sure. Caleb has managed big properties and stuff for whitetails, but his main job is um, he's an agronomist and ag consultant, and he farms as well in South Georgia, you know, and they have one or two CEC soil, so sand that that's a sandy soil type, yep. right? And they're growing corn that would rival a lot of corn that's in the Midwest. Corn is a highly, highly nutrient demanding crop. So how are they doing it? Well, they're doing it through specific techniques that they know work for that soil type. So I tell people a lot, like if you're, you can do a lot, like I could probably grow a big purple top turnip in a gravel driveway if I sit there and and foliar feed it, you know? Um, So it's more about like, what are your goals as a grower? whether you're a farmer or a food plotter or, or a gardener, like what are your goals? Now, if you say I got really sandy soil and I want to rip the bandage off, I don't want to use any amendments. I don't want any input. Well, all right, we got to work cut out for us, right? Like we're going to have <laughs> yep. to yep. pick seeds and varieties and time moisture, right? Like 
that's going to, you know, we're going to have to rent the no-till drill from the conservation office. Like, you know, we're going to be using biological inoculants to help with fungal establishment within that soil profile. Like that's a, that's a much different discussion. Um, Similarly in, in heavy clay type soils, um, no-till is amazing. I mean, it's, it's absolutely an amazing process. Like maybe we need to pull some soil samples and make a plan there, right. From a, from a, if the growers interested in saying, I want long-term benefits to the soil profile, right. Well then we're going to look at calcium and magnesium based saturations on a soil. We're going to decide, do we want gypsum? Do we want lime sources? Then we're going to say, okay, you know what? This first year, let's say it's totally void of phosphorus and potassium and, and it's, it's super compacted from years of mistreatment. Like let's rip the bandage off. Let's, you know, let's till it hard, like till it hard that first year, get the phosphorus in the root zone, get the potassium down, get your, your lime or gypsum down, depending, right? Like depending on what that prescription is. And then get a seed, you know, get the seed down and, and get it, you know, set for it. And then we'll go to a no-till system thereafter. Right. Yep. Um, so, I mean, and listen, there's, there might be people out there. I know there's people out there that would disagree with that, but I would rather do that and do it right the first time. Or somebody called me and they're like, I got a field full of ruts. Is it okay for me to till it? I'm like, yeah. Like, you know, I, I don't think we should recreational till, but like, fix the ruts, man. You know, you don't want to, you going to flip your tractor because you don't want to have the ruts there. Like just fix the rut, you know? So I think sometimes like with anything in life, things get overly polarizing. So going back to then seed choice. So now we ask the grower, okay, so now we have a plan. It's like, this is a one year field, man. I just want something to grow. All right. Do you want something in the spring? Do you want something in the summer? Do you want to treat it? Or do you want to just have kind of a hunting plot, right? So then we have to go through these series of questions. If you're just looking for a fall hunting plot, easy to, you know, to grow, you can't really go wrong with grains, right? Um, I mean, cereal grains uh, in Southern states, oats can be very good because they'll last a lot longer. In your more Northern states, even the Northern Southern states like Tennessee, you're probably not going to have oats survive the you know Tennessee winter. There, I mean, maybe a good, really good quality oat, but in general, the oats you buy at like a feed store are probably not going to survive that type of winter. Um, certainly not once you get into you know Kentucky, Ohio, etc. Um, I always like clovers. I like clovers for fall establishment. I love crimson clover. Um, it's fibrous. It grows easily. It puts on a ton of above and below ground biomass. Um, and there's a lot of other fancy clovers I can talk about. So that's a really easy food plot, right? Grains, clovers, brassicas, um, you know, you can, you can establish that relatively easy, smaller seed size. You could spray and just broadcast. Um, those are pretty good universally, right? I mean, as long as you get rain, you're, you're going to have, um, some, some pretty good success there. Um, if you're looking for, oh, I want summertime forage, I want to help, you know, fawns uh, or yeah, does who just uh, gave birth to fawns, um, et cetera, you know, that's where you, it's going to be a little trickier because you are going to have larger seed size there. And that's where it really gets into the equipment that the grower has. Um, because if you're not no-till drilling it and you're trying to broadcast it, which can work really, really well, but there's some keys to doing this broadcast method I want to make sure people are aware of. And the biggest in my opinion, the number one thing is time in a rain. If you like, if you till ground and put seed down and pack that ground in with your tractor, or if you have a, a, a culture packer behind your four wheeler or something, and there's already some moisture in that ground, and then it goes for a week, and then you get a good rain it seems to do okay, right? Because it's already on the soil. It's in the soil. Now there's negatives to, to doing that, right? We can get, go down that rabbit hole later. But when you broadcast that seed, it is, if you don't get that soil to just, or the, excuse me, that rain to just kind of pound it down in and kind of jumpstart that seed, you know, that energy, right? The seed's just a ball of energy to jump out and want to find that soil. It doesn't seem to do as well. So I always tell people that it take it, I've grown some beautiful fields, but just herbicide burned down and seeding into it. And they didn't even mow it, didn't roll it, nothing. Sprayed it, let it dry, came back, seeded into it, 
and went home. Like, you know, and that's it. And have grown beautiful fields that way. But it takes time that every property, if you're going to go that route, is different. Deer density plays a role into it. Um, you know, seed predation plays like what's your turkey population? Yeah. You know, yep. some guys have pheasants depending on where they're at. Like, you know what I mean? So keep those things in mind. And then of course, soil fertility is going to play a role into the seed establishment. Once that seed does get that first set of roots into the ground, what's the fertility like in that soil? Is it setting that seed up for success or not? Um, so those will all play a role, but you notice in that whole rambling piece what it keeps coming back to is the soil the seed is just like a vehicle for nutrient transfer but we can grow a lot of seeds in a lot of different soil types um, we just kind of have to come up with the right plan for that particular grower yeah i mean that's really good and that was p- part of what i was hoping that you would um you would hit on a little bit there is is that concept of i have soil that looks and feels like this to me Therefore, this is what I need to grow, right? Like, I, th- I think that's kind of the common perception, right? Like, if, if I have this kind of soil, well, it looks like it's sandy. Therefore, I can't grow corn or I, I can only grow this or, or whatever the case may be. I think I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but, but I have to throw it out there. Uh, full disclosure, I do a little bit of both, and it's very situational. When it comes to choosing a monoculture planting versus, you know, maybe a all clover field versus a, a blend planting. What is the, what, what are the benefits of each or, or what's your preference and why? I mean, my preference is always a blend um, for, for various reasons. One, I've seen the browse pressure hold up a lot better yep. um, in, in blends and not just me. I mean, with some of the growers that we work with, um, I mean, you're talking guys are some of these guys are doing 30, 40, 50 acres on their single farms just wow. for white tails. Um, in one case, I think they shot 60 or 70 does off this. Uh, it was like four or 500 acres over two or three years. So you're talking some extreme deer densities and they could never get a monoculture to grow yeah. ever. Yep. And they went with some, you know, it happened to be ours, but they went with diverse mixes and he super great guy. And uh, we've really become good friends, but, and he's like, I've never, he's like, my brother and I, we've never been able to get tonnage like this growing. And I'm like, I think it's just, it makes the deer work a little bit harder. You also have varying levels of crops. So one, the browse pressure, two, better for the soil, right? You have varying root exudates, which are going to feed microbes A, which microbes A, when they're triggered, feed microbe B, which when B triggered, like, right, there's a synergistic relationship underground. Um, we won't get into all the details there, but it, it is important to realize that that's helping a lot of other nutrients solubilize for other plants to take up. Um, and then also, in my opinion, they can still be a little bit um, finicky, specifically spring planting, spring plantings, you know, weeds are trying to grow too, right? But I think they're a lot less maintenance. So I typically plant my, my either I, I spray or I mow off my fall crop. I either broadcast on small fields or on the larger fields, I run my no-till drill through there, through there and you know, I go back to the house, like it's done. Like I don't, I don't do anything else. And I wait until fall. So I planted May 3rd this year in Ohio and I'll plant my fall mix, let's say August 3rd, just for talking purposes, somewhere in that window. I don't even need to, no, I will, because I'm going to do tissue testing and things like that. But like, I don't even need to go look at those fields. I just look at the radar, pray for rain, you know, but other than that, like, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. If those were monoculture, let's say clover or a, a roundup ready variety um, that I was really, I'd, ha, I'd be going in there spraying and spraying and spraying. Me, if there's a little ragweed or something, I'm not worried about it. And the diversity tends to kind of choke out a lot of that. Yeah. Um, now, I will say, you know, there are benefits in areas for, for specifically clover monocultures. Um, I think they work really good in, in like on logging road, fire breaks. Um, you know, things of that nature. Um, and I do love clovers. Um, I just tend to like a lot more of the annual um, varieties. Hey guys, just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the How to Hunt Deer podcast is brought to you by Tacticam, makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers. They're on the cutting edge, making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones. 
Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that's a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions in the past, you know how frustrating it can be to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of accessories. This fall, I'll be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with a 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com. Share your hunt with Tacticam. Yep, absolutely. And that was when I when I said monoculture and I use a, a little bit of that as well, uh, that's exactly the, the situation. It's... It's smaller areas. There's sometimes shady areas or, you know, not ideal. It's a logging road or it's a, you know, I've got one spot in particular that I'm thinking of. It's a low spot with a creek and that creek could rise and could take the, take the plot out. I don't know what's going to happen down there. So I'm just, we're just going to go with clover and hopefully yeah. it gets established enough that it can survive whatever the creek throws at it. But, uh, yeah. but we'll, we'll find out. So, all right, now walk me through the vitalize one, two process, right? Cause I mean, it, it's really intriguing and I've looked at some of the, um, I guess it'd be like graphics that you guys have uh, online after doing some digging, like pictures of, you know, what's going on in the soil, which is like, holy cow, there's, there's a whole lot going on here that has gone into uh, the planning of all this. But tell me about the, the I forget exactly what it's called, is, is the two-step process or the one-two process or something like that, but yeah. tell me yeah, more about yeah, it. Call it the one-two um, process, and, you know, really, so... <laughs> I had been doing a whole bunch of research and, you know, read all the, the books that I could, you know, the, the Gabe Brown, the John Sicka, I, uh, unfortunately, David Brandt um, had just passed away actually a couple days ago. He was from uh, Columbus, Ohio, and was just a founding father of the soil health movement. He had unfortunately got in a, a car accident, I believe, and oh, um, man. kind of suddenly passed away. But I mean, he had so many videos with Ray Archuleta and just, just uh, rest in peace because he was an amazing guy. Um, I never did get to meet him, but I mean, he influenced me through his YouTube channel in such positive ways. But anyhow, um, through these videos, there there was such an emphasis on diversity and, um, you know, how these plants, you know, typically guys who were first starting, they're like, well, what th- what is this one plant? You know, does that pull calcium and this plant pulls this? It's like, you can't look at it that way, right? It, it's this complete synergistic relationship between all the plants and all the diversity working together with the soil. But where I think a lot of people, where I felt a lot of people were missing the boat and what I found was working for me. Um, I had been fortunate. I haven't used fertilizer on my farm in six or seven years. Um, I've used lime. So you could count lime, I guess, as fertilizer, but even lime I've used like almost very little, you know, um, in, in six or seven years. Uh, and I, I'm I'm not against using lime. I think it's important. And that's another discussion. Um, But how I was able to do this is it's a lot of people will say things like soil building mix. This is a soil building mix. And it's somewhat of like a misnomer, right? Because it's like the term like sports car, right? Like every company has a sports car, but like, is a Ferrari really comparing itself to like the Kia sports car? Like, you know, like that seems like there's a big difference there. And really what makes the Ferrari good is what's under the hood, right? Like what's actually making it a sports car. Um, And I think that's where, for me, what I wanted to bring to the food plot industry is like this understanding of carbon and nitrogen ratios. Um, It's something that's in a lot of book, the John Sicka book, a soil owner's manual. I really recommend that. But it's, it's the easiest way I can explain it to somebody is if you rake your leaves in the fall and you put a big old pile of leaves back by your shed and you forget about them, you're going to look there in 18 years and there's going to be a big pile of leaves there still. Mm. Maybe not that long, but it takes, but if you simply cut your grass, green grass clippings and you throw them on top of that pile. And then all of a sudden you go, you know what, honey, you just finished that orange. Give me that orange peel. Give me that banana peel. Give me that apple core. And you throw it in there as well. So now you're adding diversity to this pile, right? And then maybe you, tu- you turn the pile or whatever, get a little bit of air in there. 
Or, and then you throw next year's leaves on there. In about a year, you're going to go and turn that pile. And at the bottom, you're going to have soil. Yep. Well, the reason that doesn't work in the first scenario where it's just the leaves and it works in the other is because of carbon and nitrogen ratios where you're feeding microbes. Micro, microbes need so many parts of nitrogen to carbon. So what happens is you have these mixes out there that are like, uh, I'm a soil building mix, and it has this tremendous amount of carbon being grains or, or, or like sorghum or corn, right? Another example I could use is like, if you ever have seen a farmer use corn on corn on corn or plant corn on corn on corn, I guarantee you he's tilling it under. He's not going to do corn on corn on corn in no-till unless he's adding a lot of nitrogen to that system through either cover crops, um, legume cover crops, or synthetic nitrogen. And the reason is, is because he would just, you would just have all this duff sitting on top. Yep. What's all that duff holding? That's all holding a lot of nutrients. So you have what they call nutrient tie up. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to simplify everything. Like I almost, I don't like, I don't love when people are like, Oh, you're a soil building, like, focus company. No, I like to say we're trying to focus on nutrient cycling, right? We're trying to optimize this system to reduce the grower's inputs to whatever level he or she wants to reduce their inputs. But we're really trying to give you a mix in the spring that has a lot of legumes, but still has spring barley, still has sunflower, still has some sorghum, still has some forage rape. People, why is that in there? Well, you're going to plant that if you're following the system into decaying or dying carbon, we call it carbon load, but a fall planting, grains, brassicas, clovers, etc. Well, that turnip radish, it had assimilated all this energy, right? It's just a ball of energy, it grew, and now it's decaying the next spring. And you have nitrogen, which is a leachable nutrient, especially southern Alabama and that sandy soil, nitrogen's gone like that. Yep. Well, your plants work so hard or maybe you even spent money foliar applying because you know you have this inherently leachable soil. So maybe you foliar applied your fall and your fall crop was beautiful. Why would we not want to recycle that nutrient or nutrient cycle that nutrient? So what we're going to do is that, that uh, if we went in there and just planted legumes, like say monoculture soybeans to follow that crop, they don't need a whole bunch of nitrogen. So let's say you fixed your, or your plants assimilated 50 pounds of nitrogen per acre. And now it's all decaying and going somewhere. I'm sure some's going to hold up in organic matter and such, but you're going to lose a bunch because you just planted a, a monoculture legume crop. So what you get with the diversity, so you have all these other plant species, the spring barley and such, like I mentioned, they're going to say, hey, give me that nitrate. Because nitrogen is going to get to nitrate most likely. <clears throat> and it's going to say, give me that nitrate, which is most leachable also, um, commonly has been known as the most plant assimilable form of nitrogen, which is nitrate. So when it gets to nitrate, if you don't have a root there that's going to say, give me that, it's probably going to be gone, Mm. right? So that is where it's very important to have in in your spring mix, not just a monoculture of, say, um, you know, of, of say, uh, legumes. However, the inverse of that is, well, you don't want just carbon because if you just have carbon, then you get back to the leaf pile example. There's not enough nitrogen in your system to break down the straw. So I'll give you an uh, example of this, Josh. Is a lot of times people will say, man, I was told to put, uh, I don't even know what some of the numbers are, but 400 pounds an acre of, of rye grain, you know, and it was so green. But man, I wanted to do no-till in that fashion. It was so thick. I couldn't. The next, I had to till it all under. Mm. I, I this no-till stuff, it doesn't work. Well, there's a reason farmers, a good, really good buddy of mine in Michigan is a large-scale farmer. And, um, he did a cover crop of rye grain and hairy vetch. I think it was 30 pounds of rye grain to the acre. Wow. And like five pounds of hairy vetch. Now, of course, the goals are slightly different there, right? So I, I don't want to don't want to say like that's perfect for every you know, every hunter, because maybe the hunter wants a little bit more smaller area, more deer pressure, more, but, but keep that in mind from a nutrient cycling perspective. Why is that farmer doing 30 pounds of rye grain to the acre? And here, this guy's doing 300 pounds on a half acre. 
Mm. You know, and if you're if you're just wanting to kill it under, you know, and you're just going to beat beat it down with with physical means, then maybe that's okay. So back to kind of our mixes and what we're doing is we're trying to optimize system. You know, planting one right, which is our nitro boost, feeds the system in soil so that when you come in, you plant your fall kind of money crop for us hunters, you can reduce your need for inputs because you do have, now you've terminated that spring barley that grabbed the nitrogen was leaching out, but you've also had soybeans and Eagle forage beans and lab lab and vetch and all of these fixing nitrogen. So now they're all dead because you terminate them, mowed them off, roller crimped them, sprayed them, don't care how, how the person wants to terminate, that's up to the grower. But now they're all dead, and that other that other nitrogen that was trying to leach up, it's now dead, it's all there. Now you plant this carbon, uh, heavy carbon mix into it to grab all of that nitrogen. And I'm using nitrogen because it's the most popular to talk about sure. nutrients. But phosphorus and, and NPK, micronutrients, et cetera, this is happening to all of them. So you can reduce your need for inputs with that simple one-two system. Yeah, man, I, I tell you, if ever there is a time where that should grab people's attention when it comes to uh, reducing your inputs every year, now's the time. I, I was talking to a guy the other day that had he needs something for, for all of his plots. He needs something close to 10,000 pounds uh, of lime. And he's like, man, the lime alone is going to break me. And I was like, I know. <laughs> like, yeah, this it is getting tough. And so when you start talking about the fertilizer needs, like that's – way expensive at this point. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to, it's going to be pretty costly. So, uh, when it comes, so you've got the, the nitro boost, right. And the carbon load, does it matter if I'm going to, uh, get started with this system, which one I plant first? No, no. I mean, you just, the biggest thing you want to do is just make sure that you plant nitro boost in the spring and carbon load in the fall, which we honestly, we only really focus on those two mixes as well because we want the freshest seed possible. Sure. So like you can't make that mistake. Like we'll stop selling our nitro boost. Um, honestly, probably by June 15th, we'll say, listen, you know, thanks for the business this year, but we're going to be done with it. And then we'll take, uh, we're taking pre-orders now for carbon load. Um, but we want that fresh seed possible. So as long as you're planting at the right times of year, um, there, there's no, uh, no concern there. Yeah. So when it comes, let's, let's talk a little bit about this, uh, about this hunting blend then, right? Like that's, that's the sweet spot at the end of the day. Uh, a lot of folks who are listening to a podcast on, um, on food plots, they want to know how am I going to kill a deer in this food plot that I'm planting? Like that's their, their big goal, right? So, uh, can you talk about, and obviously I know, I know, you know, blends, you can't go too far into detail about what all's in them and ratios and that kind of stuff. But can you talk a little bit about what's in them that will make them attractive at certain times of year, uh, especially going into the fall? Like, like, is there something in there that's going to get me through from September all the way into December? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, our, our, our blend, um, you know, we, I'll just kind of read it here actually, because if I don't, I'm not going to remember all of it, but um, so our fall blend is, is really diverse. So it's a fall triticale winter wheat. Um, That's actually sunburst winter wheat, which a lot of guys do like that variety better. Um, I think it's a really good variety of winter wheat, but uh, we use uh, rye grain. We use oats. We have winter peas, um, buckwheat, just a little bit of buckwheat in there. Honestly, that's kind of for, because it's good for pollinators in the fall. Um, we do have hairy vetch, crimson clover, chicory, uh, frosty bursine clover, fixation balanza clover, uh, radish, windfred forage brassicas, purple top turnips, barknat turnip, and then uh, a paja brassica. Wow. Okay. So, so we have a mix in there that uh, I like to highlight to people. You know, our mix, our, our grains. Um, are about 55% of that mix. Okay. Um, so it's about only about half grains, um, which means the remainder is, and that's a 45 pound bag to the acre. Um, so the remainder of that is all high quality brassicas and clovers, um, you know, fixation balanza, frosty bursine, crimson. I mean, you know, we use Dixie crimson clover 
a really good brand um, of clover. You know, so we try to, I always tell people, I'm not going to sell anything that I want to plant on my own farm. You know, so you can get just 80, 90, 95% and then people throw in a little bit of this to that and it's like a mix. Um, but we really want to have that balance of the grains to the brassicas. And that's why when people say, oh, you can't mid plant those together, like literally I have thousands of pictures showing you. It's about <laughs> the spacing though. You have to be cognizant of that, that grains to brassicas to, cl- I mean, clover kind of just fills in, right? That chicory sure. kind of fills in and, and in the fall, it's attractive and it's great. Um, you wouldn't believe the calls of people that are like, Man, I thought that was a good fall deer tip plot, but I just shot the turkeys, three turkeys over it this week at our hunting camp, you know? And I'm like, oh, really? And they're like, we just, they love it because of the crimson and the hairy vetch and all of that's growing up and the bugs just love it. So if you think it's good in the fall, it's like equally as good in the spring. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. I was looking at the blend earlier online and I was like, holy cow, man, like I bet this is really, really good, especially if you're, you know, in one of those places where, I mean, here by the end of, by by the time turkey season ends in in Georgia, you know our our food plots are waist high from what was growing last year. It's like ah, this they're not in there too much anymore. Like there's not a lot of strutting room. But man, early season, I bet they'd be great down here um, yeah. for turkeys. I bet the turkeys really just really really love that. So talk to me about uh, browse tolerance, right? I mean it's quite a blend. I mean a lot of stuff in there. Uh, talk to me about browse tolerance and then you know, maybe when some of this stuff is going to, to become more, I guess, palatable or attractive, is there some kind of sequence that you guys have planned out as far as, you know, when certain, uh, when these plants are going to be more desirable than others or, or is it kind of just, Hey, these, this is what we need for the nutrient cycling. And so that's, what's going to be in there. A little bit of both. I mean, I, I like to use, um, you know, rye grain because I think it's widely adapted to various soil types, soil conditions. It's pretty drought tolerant. You can pretty much grow it in the back of your, your pickup truck. Yep. Um, you know, same with like winter wheat, you know, it's, it's just a really great species that deer everywhere are going to eat. Yep. Um, the brassicas, like I mentioned, some of them are a forage variety. So they're, they're not meant to make a big bulb. They're meant to be browsed, um, which helps to increase some of your browsability. Um, you know, but again, you know, a, a daikon radish or a purple top turnip, you know, if, if you have a really, really high deer density, like you, you might not be able to get huge bulbs. It just, it kind of depends. And I never want to act like I'm over promising to somebody that that's really dependent on, on this particular situation. Um, you know, but we have found whether it was intentional or not, you know, just over the years before I started the company kind of doing this and adding some things is, Having those oats and buckwheat in there, particularly in the beginning and in the, in our spring crop too, right? We have this spring barley. I had a guy call me. He's what is that stuff that comes out? He's like, he came out of the ground in like two days. I'm like, well, that's somewhat intentional, right? For all the things I talked about earlier from, from grabbing that nitrogen and other leachable nutrients out of the soil profile, but also kind of acting as a nurse crop for your beans. Well, similarly in the fall, um, you know, that buckwheat, it seems like it grows right that, you know, you snap your fingers and it, it's growing out of the ground if you have any type of moisture. Um, and then same with oats. And those kind of act as your nurse crops, right? Those are kind of the first things that are kind of nipped at. Um, and then, you know, your grains can just withstand so much browse. I mean, they just can withstand so much browse. Um, the clovers, they kind of take a little bit of time, honestly. The clovers, like I said, they, they'll they'll look good in the fall, but they really shine that following spring. I mean, they just look in March, like in Ohio, for example, March is like the harshest time of year for whitetail. Mm-hmm. You have darn near no woody brows left unless you're actively out there cutting. Yep. You know, that's right. The food plots. <clears throat> If they're monoculture brassicas, let's say they're gone. gone. They're they're just mud. So unless you have something coming up out of the ground, you're not really feeding deer, right? They're they're starving. They're eating autumn olive. They're eating, you know, I've seen deer paw through uh, for fescue on properties. So, you know, what I tell people is our fields that are planted in our mix, they're the only thing that's green around. That rye grain, winter wheat, triticale, the oats aren't going to make it through the season, but that's okay. Um, and those clovers are popping up. So those really, really get good then. Um, and then, of course, your brassicas, um, you know, assuming you can get some pretty decent growth, which, 
you know, you should be able to, um, you just plant more food or shoot more deer or both is something that I tell a lot of people, like from a deer hunting perspective is, um, you know, that, that's something that's, that's often needed. You know, you have to either shoot more does or plant more food or, or both. But, um, with that being said, the nice thing about these diverse mixes, Josh, is let's say you plant it and by November, like I had a real small field I planted it in last year and the deer just demolished it. I mean, the deer just inside the exclusion fence was like a two foot difference. Mm. <clears throat> it was like I had brassicas inside the fence up to my knee and outside I couldn't even find one. Wow. And I ended up shooting, we had like three or four does coming that night, my buddy filming and we shot one together. It was like one of the best experiences, me and one of my best friends. And um, I never shot a deer on film. It was just like really cool to, to do that. Um, and the reason is, is they were still coming in there because that clover and hairy vetch and grains were just filling in the gaps where the deer ate all the brassicas first. Mm. So you're never, you know, knock on wood, you're never cleaning the table, right? I mean, unless you get some crazy drought or something. I try not to talk in absolutes. So you're, you're really mitigating the risk of ever cleaning the table. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, planting methods for this, for the, this blend. I, I know that, you know, there are guys out there who've got all the equipment and if you've got all the equipment, this segment is probably this little piece of the podcast, not going to be for you because it's very clear what you need to do to get that in the ground. You got a no-till drill, man, get after it. Have a good time. Uh, for the rest of us though, that don't have big equipment, maybe we've got a four wheeler, you know, and that's the best we can do. Or, um, you know, maybe we, we, for me personally, I want to put the tiller away. I don't, I don't want to till. Uh, and uh, so what is the, the best method for getting this in the ground? And then I've got a couple of spots that are just compacted, just the worst kind of, in the worst kind of way. It's been logged and not only has it been logged, but part of, part of this field has been used as a road in the past and we got, we got to do something there. Right. So uh, is, is there any hope? What, what would you do? Yeah. So as far as planting goes, again, I, I always tell people, I have this really corny saying, but I, I'll say it anyways. <laughs> for, so I always like to say any step towards soil conservation is a step in the right direction. Yeah, that's And good. I like that because I felt I was the guy for 14 years that had, you know, a smaller tractor and I had a six foot tiller. And here I was being told, you know, use this herbicide and that herbicide and, and this, herb, and then the other guy screaming, don't use any herbicide. And then the other person saying, don't ever till it. And it was so overwhelming. And it's like, <clears throat> if we can just get people to enjoy your property, you know, we're not here for that long of a time. So we want to be good stewards to the land, but also enjoy their property. So if let's just say the guy's like dead said, I want to till, I didn't make up this term but look up conservation tillage. I just did a video on, on our YouTube on this. And my wife's like, I don't want you using herbicide in your garden. You know? So I did, I got like 60 tomato plants or something like that in my garden right now. And that's about half of what I'll end up planting. And I have this huge, which is our carbon load cover crop in there. It's about two foot high. I terminated it with my tiller. Mm. So I light I'm talking a half inch is that tiller is going into the ground. When I look back behind me off that tractor, it is a, looks like a green mat, basically. It almost looks like roller crimped, but not quite. And there's just a tiny little bit of dirt exposed. Mm. Now, because I tilled, I did, you, we sell a product, but there's a lot out there. You don't have to feel like you have to go to our website, but we partnered with a company out of Washington that does mycorrhizal fungi inoculants. So when I then, if anytime I use tillage, I'm reestablishing or trying to help reestablish the mycorrhizal fungi because the fungal networks are some of the things that get damaged through tillage. There's runoff and other things too, but that's some of the things that happen. So I always feel like, hey, I'm going to do concert. I'm going to do light tillage, number one. Number two, <clears throat> so I'm going to try to keep 60 to 70% when I look back at that ground, it's going to be covered or more if I'm going to have to use tillage. So that's, if the guy or gal wants to do that, that's something I would recommend. I would consider, you know, a biological or fungal inoculant. You can put it right out on the seed and spray it on, just follow the instructions. If you're okay with using, so, so that would be good too. Like I have some guys say, well, I would like to till, but I don't want to use any herbicide. Well then 
I, I tell people all the time, like you're not going to roller crimp your way out of a fescue pasture. Mm. So like we have to set realistic goals. Yeah. So if like, yep. like, let's say one of our dealers, literally one of my best friends, Greg, he's got a lease that butts up to his farm. So he's got like a 270 acre farm and then like a 40 or 50 acre lease situation with this lady. And she's like, you can do whatever you want, but no herbicide. Mm. Well, it's all an old fescue horse pasture. And he's like, you know, he tried, he literally, that's what made me come up with that saying because he tried to use a roller crimper with a Great Plains no-till drill. And his success was, he was very frustrated. Yeah. Because where he was herbiciding this this beautiful Great Plains no-till, right? It looked like, <laughs> you know, he should have been on the cover of North American Farmer. You know, like it yeah. was so great. But so so I tell people, like, sometimes you have to make that decision. So his decision, he can't use her, he had to use tillage. So it has to be, Mitch actually just did a video on this not that long. He's like, it yeah, can a be a tool, a tool in the toolbox. Um, and again, just keep that in mind. I'm not saying don't go out there in August when it's 90 degrees and, and try to, you know, make it look like a dust bowl, you know. So just keep these things in mind. <clears throat> the next one is if you're okay with using herbicide. Herbicide's a tool in the toolbox. So if you can let your crops get or previous, if it's a fescue, you know, depending on the situation, if you can let them get a little bit of height on them to where you can spray them and, you know, make sure it soaks in and seed into that, or maybe seed first and spray, whatever. I'm not too worried about the semantics of the process. Um, <clears throat> I don't like getting a ton of herbicide on seed. So I always like to tell people, um, if you can spray first, let it dry and then seed into it. That's worked well for me. <clears throat> um, but that can work really well because basically what happens is if everything's still standing and you seed and seed falls down, and is, <clears throat> now it's down there by where the initial plant has its roots going into the soil. And now that plant's dying and falling over and you time that with rain. I mean, they're little balls of energy. They want to grow. You know, they're going to find that way to grow. Um, you might have to increase your seeding rate a little bit. So always be cognizant whether you're looking at my seed or somebody else's. If they're telling you, 45 or 75 or 95 pounds to the acre. <clears throat> um, that's typically your drilled or tilled and broadcast method, right? So it's guaranteed so seed to soil contact. <clears throat> we recommend, depending on you know your thatch coverage, your deer density, your situation, between five and 25% increase that first year. Um, and then kind of judge, hey, I don't like people saying I got to double my seed rate right off the bat. Yeah. I'd rather yeah. have you say, yeah, it's a little light, you know, let me let me next year go up, then feel like you wasted money and put too much seed out there. Um, <clears throat> let's see, some of the other ways. <clears throat> Again, let's say you spray. Some guys have a harrow drag, something like that. So you could spray, you could seed, you could harrow drag it. Um, even if it's just on the flat end, or you could you know, uh, seed and use a roller crimper or uh, a, a cult packer as a roller crimper. If you have something that you can pull, <clears throat> there's some affordable models of those. Uh, packer Max is one. Um, I don't know. There's a couple others I think now, but you know, that you can kind of pull behind and, and just break things down. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think if there's any other ones I had forgotten about um, methods. Are there any other ones you had questions on that maybe I, I skipped? I get so many questions about, you know, kind of how to plant. And, uh, I, I always like to say, I think the biggest thing is if you just get, have that rain in the forecast is, yeah. is I think pretty critical. Yeah. The only, only one I didn't hear you say just then, and you might've said it was Mo, um, you know, come in and, and mow after no, you. Yep. I forgot. I apologize. And that's, that's an absolutely phenomenal one. And, and, and on that note too, I'll just, I didn't, again, this isn't my research, right? I'm just regurgitating things that I've read because I'm a nerd. And I like constantly learning about this stuff. The USDA did studies on uh, roller crimpers and flail mowers, and they were terminating multi-species cover crops. And the flail mower actually had a higher termination rate um, across like three or four multi-species cover crops than the roller crimper. And it wasn't by a huge margin, but it was like it had a 92% success rate. And the roller crimper had like an 85% or 80%. So it's something to keep in mind because there's a lot of guys who have, you know, grandpa's old flail mower sitting behind the barn. Or if you're looking to buy something, you can, probably can use a flail mower around your farm behind the tractor. Um, or they even have some behind four wheelers. Now you might be able to use that around the farm a little bit more for mowing trails, mowing fence lines, you know, roller crimpers, 
kind of a uh, you know, one horse show, if you will. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's only what it is. Yeah. I was just thinking that it's like, man, if those, if those are even, I mean, even if, even if the flail mower wasn't as good as a roller crimper, it's like, but I already have one of those. You know what I mean? Like I don't, yeah. I don't have to buy or make something, something new. I've already got one of those around that. And it's going to pull double duty, right? Like it's not going to sit over there in the corner of the yard until I use it again next year. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, something that can, yeah. that can have multiple uses around the farm. So man, Al, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really, really good. If folks want to learn more specifically, if they want to know more about your process and if they want to buy some seed because man, fall's coming, they probably need to be getting on a, on a pre-order list. Uh, one of the worst feelings is to get into the fall and realize you can't get the blend that you want because it's sold out and you got to settle for the throw and grow bag down at the Walmart. Uh, that's not good. Don't do that guys. So how can they find you? Yeah, thank you so much. This has honestly been so much fun, Josh. And uh, we'll cover the compaction one offline. But uh, oh yeah, the compaction yep, issue yep. offline. But uh, yeah, we're gonna start with a soil test. I'll just leave it there. But um, so yeah, find us vitalizeseed.com is our website, guys. I'm kind of constantly making updates. If you go to the uh, find a dealer, we just added. I think we're up to 24 dealers now. We do have um, one gentleman in uh, Gunnersville area, Alabama. Um, so he stocks our product. Um, super great guy. Jeremy is his name. Um, so if you're in, in the Georgia, Alabama area um, listening, definitely check that out. Throughout the rest of the Midwest, I don't know, we have three or four guys in Michigan, two or three guys in Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, a couple guys in Ohio. So we, we have it pretty well um, spaced out. And then on our website, vitalizeseed.com, um, we do offer free shipping to your door. So you can also check us out there. Um, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, Vitalize Seed and uh youtube yeah that's uh, vitalized seed and thank you so much and if you have questions email me albert at vitalized seed i am happy to help you look at a soil test under, try to understand it um if i don't know i'll try to get you an answer awesome man well thanks for coming on the show appreciate your time thank you so much fun that's all for this week's episode as always thank you so much for tuning in if you dig this show be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast if you could leave us a five-star review i would very much appreciate that. While you're at it, you can follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at How to Hunt Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics that you want to hear, guests you want to hear from, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show and help me bring you great content each and every week. If you're looking for more outdoor content, check out thesportsmansempire.com where you're going to find my other podcast, The Wisconsin Sportsman, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts.